It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Tom Tiger. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero show. We're coming to you from the studios of 3CR Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast on the internet at 3cr.org.au. Previous episodes of the show are now also available on iTunes and Stitcher. Please subscribe and rate us to help others find the shows. My name is Natalie Bucknell. After the enormously successful launch of the BZE Northern Territory 10 gigawatt vision last year, we broadcast a number of shows covering various aspects of the plan, including business, community and government perspectives. One of these shows featured discussion about amazing news released shortly after the BZE launch of a new huge solar PV farm and an undersea power connection to Singapore who currently rely on liquid natural gas for over 95% of their energy needs. The project is a fascinating one, so today we're replaying the interview with David Griffin, MD of Sun Cable, the company heading up this project. Here are Kay Wenigal, Michael Steindl and Kira Rundle in conversation with David Griffin. Hi David, thanks for joining us. Hi Kay, thank you for having me. Firstly, David, can you tell us a bit about your background and Sun Cable and where it's based? Sure. I started out developing wind farms back in 2000, at a time when you, if you told people you were developing wind farms, they would wonder what you were talking about. Oh, um, wow. That long ago. Yeah. And started added solar farm development to that in around about 2010. I developed a large series of wind farms and solar farms in Australia and South Africa. The concept for this project has been, I guess, lurking in my head for several years, but uh, the uh, submarine cable technology just wasn't there at the time. So uh, we waited until until the technology had come of age and, and was uh, technically feasible. And that was uh, that really happened around about 2017. So we kicked off the company, incorporated Sun Cable back at the start of 2018, and we've been working on this project ever since. And whereabouts is Sun Cable based? We're based out of Sydney, although with the, the, the way um, modern workforces function, we've got, you know, our staff are uh, spread all over the place at the moment, including internationally, and uh, of course we have uh, uh, representatives in Singapore, and uh, purely by chance we have staff in Japan as well at the moment. David, the acceptance of the BZE vision for the Northern Territory last week, or sorry, two weeks ago now, was really exciting, and, and it was very exciting just to read a recent press release a couple of days ago from the Minister of Renewables, Honourable Dale Wakefield, and she stated, she highlighted the BZE vision and the Sun Cable project and said, we have the potential to be the renewable capital of Australia, and we are on our way. I know it's really early days for your project, and in some ways I, I gather that you perhaps weren't prepared for the, the <laughs> press release fuss, but can you describe the NT project with us and what perhaps what provisos you've got about it going ahead? Sure. Well, first of all, the Minister's correct. I mean, the potential for the Northern Territory to be a literal powerhouse 
for Australia and, and certainly the region is absolutely clear. The solar resource that's available in the Northern Territory is phenomenal, mm. arguably the best in the world. Yeah, and we'll come back to that one because there's specifics of just how far, how close to the coast you go and how far south you go, isn't there? Sure. Yeah. 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 So, and yes, you're right. We weren't uh, we weren't actually planning to be initially uh, out in the, in the public eye at this point in time, but um, enterprising journalists do what journalists do and uh, un- uncover stories, and away you go. So that's fine. <laughs> Um, well, I know we'd been talking to you and you said you weren't going to talk to us till September, so we're, we're glad to have you now. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the, the broad concept of the project is uh, that uh, we're developing a uh, 10,000 gigawatt, sorry, 10,000 megawatt hour, and 10 gigawatt solar farm. Um, it's within about an hour and a half of Tennant Creek and... That solar farm will supply a uh, transmission line to Darwin, and it will supply a uh, so that that transmission capacity is about three gigawatts. And um, and, and just describe how where Tennant Creek is because it's a fair way away, isn't it, from Darwin? It's about eight hundred kilometres south of mm. Darwin. It's a it's a long way from from the next place. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, the um, yeah, so we've got a ten gigawatt solar farm supplying a uh, circa three gigawatt transmission capacity. The remainder of that generation capacity will be used to charge batteries, and the project will discharge overnight. So we will be to our customers. We will be supplying dispatchable power. Some of those customers require a 24-hour supply, so that is how we are designing the project. Um, it's not a uh, it's not a flat load, so the, the customers' demands vary through the day, but certainly there is a requirement right through the night to be supplying some of these uh, potential off-takers. So um, that's that's how we're designing it. Just, just to interrupt there, so in very rough terms, you're talking about. 10 gigawatt at, say, roughly 30% capacity factor and using the batteries, then you'll get roughly a, a 3 gigawatt continuous capability. That- yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Now, our, our dispatch strategy won't be, uh, I, I can tell you, it won't be that we're dispatching 3 gigawatts uh, 24 hours a day, but uh, that's the capacity of the, of the transmission capability. But we will, um, uh, the actual dispatch strategies. Quite nuanced, and it's also pretty commercially sensitive. So I probably can't go much into much more detail about that. Um, but the customers, so we're, we're transmitting that roughly 800 kilometres to Darwin, and the first customers are located there. And uh, there's an opportunity, so there's um, uh, a number of loads in that region, including, of course, the Darwin Catherine. Network. So Darwin and Darwin and Catherine are electrically connected. It's effectively one grid uh, connected by a, uh, a 132 kV transmission line. It's a relatively well, it is a small load, uh, but um, it's also uh, a load that we can commercially supply. So we're, um, we our network passes through Darwin. Uh, we can make it work so that we can uh, dispatch some of that electricity into that Darwin 
network and some potential other uh, loads in the area. Within, uh, we'll uh, transition from the, uh, tra- uh, from the overland transmission to the submarine cable and the submarine cables. And the submarine cables will track basically west from Darwin through the Australian Economic Exclusion Zone into the Indonesian EZ and then up into Indonesian archipelagic waters, which is basically the waters north of the archipelago, uh, through the Java Sea and uh, Natuna Sea and up to Singapore. And the uh, whilst the uh, transmission transfer power cap- capacity from the solar farm will be circa three gigawatts, the submarine cable will probably be less than that once we've accounted for uh, losses uh, between uh, Tennant Creek and Darwin and also uh, the uh, the local load that we're supplying in Darwin. So, um, And it also is subject to the actual configuration of the HVDC network. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it would most likely be a, a smaller transfer capacity. So, uh, but David... Still, still very substantial. Yes, three gigawatt of energy, about 4,000 kilometres of high-voltage DC cable... And 15,000 hectares of solar arrays, and the the power will supply your hoping a fifth of Singapore's energy requirements. Mm. Minister Wakefield was right, wasn't she? This solar project will be the biggest in the world, let alone Australia. As far as we know, absolutely. So the um, there are a number of gigawatt scale solar farms. So there's some actually in operations, and we we understand the largest one in the world is about 2,500 megawatts at the moment. The um, and there are projects planned at five gigawatts in the Middle East, and there's a seven and a half gigawatts uh, in India. Um, but uh, yeah, that 10 gigawatts, as far as we can see, we're the largest planned solar farm in the world at this stage. I wouldn't be surprised, um, however, that uh, given the nature of this uh, this technology, uh, I, 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 way back I developed uh, the Olympia Wind Farm, and for a couple of weeks it was the largest wind farm in the country. Um, and nothing, <laughs> nothing lasts very long in terms of uh, scale records. Yeah. Um, okay, David, I want to come back to something that we talked about a little bit earlier, which was that the solar farm is going to be located, you said, about an hour and a half from Tennant Creek. And I was just wondering, why did you choose that location, given that it's kind of far away from both Darwin and Singapore? Yeah. Uh, it's, it, it's all about the resource. and Well, in fact, no, it, it, it's more than that. <clears throat> so clearly it's a fantastic uh, solar resource and effectively unutilised at this stage. The, the I guess the balancing act was uh, identifying a site that's um, far enough south that you're away from um, the negative impacts of the wet season, it, be it uh, cloud cover or, or extremes of weather, mm. um, and uh, close enough to uh, not... Um, to, to still have an economic advantage once, you, once you've taken into account the additional capital cost of uh, building that transmission line and the associated line losses, etc. HVDC technology broadly has come a hell of a long way uh, over the last 20 years and to a material degree 
the line losses are really a design outcome rather than just a something that is imposed upon you. So we can um, manipulate the design of the HVTC network to achieve uh, an optimal level of, of transmission losses, having account, taking into account the cost of conductors and the cost of metal uh, and a thousand other different variables. Um, and uh, so we've and look, that optimization process will not end until we start construction, pretty much. But um, we've taken a conservative view on all the key inputs into this project, uh, developed a very sophisticated optimization model, and determined that uh, the project is best located well south of its potential markets and take the hit on the additional capex mm-hmm. but still have a, a, a better economic outcome, even um, even recognising we've got to build all that additional infrastructure. David, I first came across HVDC links um, with the first BZE stationary yeah. injury report where <coughs> they proposed linking East and West Australia. I'm wondering um, if we should just quickly tell our listeners uh, for high those voltage who aren't aware. DC, <laughs> yeah. as I was in. Yeah. And the essence of them, I, I gather, is that uh, they're much more capital cost to set up, but it's worth it for um, getting large amounts of electricity large distances because it's worth that capital investment and that they're actually much more efficient than an AC link for for those sort of distances. In In researching this project, it looks like they've come a long way and that there's some amazing high-voltage DC links around the world. You, the way you're talking sounds like you're going to be right at the leading and hopefully not bleeding edge of that. Can you just clarify the the link Tennant Creek to Darwin is HVDC and okay, and then you've said you can get off that. Getting on and off the HVDC is expensive, isn't it? But you think it's worth it for that link to Darwin? Yeah, so uh, multi-terminal. So, so first of all, yes. Uh, the entire transmission uh, network that we're developing is HVDC. Um, and as, as a broad rule of thumb, uh, there's lots of variables that will change its outcome, but as a broad rule of thumb, if you're transmitting more than 400 kilometres, it's probably, um, that's probably the commercial crossover point where HVDC makes more sense than automating current. The... Um, in regards to Darwin, so basically what we're developing is a multi-terminal system, which is another, uh, I, I guess, from a commercial it, it's, uh, from a commercial perspective, this is a, a relatively new outcome that is now commercially viable to develop large multi-terminal systems where you have um, more than uh, a route that goes from A to B. So we can now tap off that network into Darwin, um, even with a relatively modest um, load, and make that work commercially. Um, technically, it works. It's just a, a function of the, the cost, the additional capital cost of building that equipment in Darwin, the additional voltage source converter in Darwin, um, and uh, ensuring that that still is worthwhile um, and. All our calculations to date show that that yes that will work. So yeah, we're still 
um, finessing that and to a great degree. There's a lot, lot of work yet to be done on that, including quantifying just what the, the capacity of that voltage source could so that, be. So that's a first, the way you can tap off and, um, and the type of cable that you're using. <coughs> but it's also a first in terms of the distance that you're running. I mean, it sounds like no one's run anything beyond 1,000 kilometres at this stage undersea. Uh, yeah, so I guess there's two aspects there. The overland component, um, there's numerous projects around the world uh, with higher um, operating at higher voltages, travelling over longer distances. Um, the um, uh, particularly in China and Brazil and the like. Um, the submarine side of things is uh, uh, yes, at this stage we would be um, the longest uh, project, but um, the water depth is probably more of the, uh, you know, the, the, the challenging aspect. Mm. than The Seymour the, the, Trench? Yeah. Is it actually yeah, three kilometres deep? That's the figure I have in my head. Uh, well, it depends where you cross, but it's <laughs> actually, it gets a heck of a lot deeper than that, uh, you know, more than five kilometres in, in certain areas. So um, your route selection is pretty important, and, in fact, it's it's crucial. The, um, the deepest... HVDC link in the world uh, from Sardinia to Italy, and that's at 1,650 metres, and uh, quite a um, undulating terrain as well on the seafloor there. Um, but that um, that HVDC link uh, was pushing the limits at the time, but has operated pretty much flawlessly uh, since it was installed. The, the um, the challenge with depth is really about the uh, laying of the cable rather than the operation of the cable. Uh, so uh, if you can imagine the ship rolling off uh, cable, uh, cable rolling off the back of a, uh, a ship, the deeper mm-hmm. the water it gets into, the more cable is dangling mm-hmm. off the back, mm-hmm. the more pulling force, um, and eventually something has to give. Either the cable breaks or the ship breaks, and... Um, that's uh, been a, a key limitation in terms of where HVDC cables can be laid. So in comparison, uh, the ocean floors are covered in fibre optic cables in, in extremely deep waters, and um, that's a function of weight. So mm-hmm. an HVDC cable um, is uh, pretty thin diameter and, uh, and it's light, and so there really hasn't been any particular constraints in, in laying that in, in very deep waters. You mean the optic cables? The fibre optic cables, yeah. sorry, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, but the by H- comparison, an HVDC cable is very heavy and uh, and big diameter, and uh, so we've needed the larger ships to come along, which is now happening. So And, and mater- advances in material sciences mean that the, the cables are stronger and, uh, and, and somewhat lighter as well for the same. If you've just tuned in, we're talking to David Griffin from Sun Cable about the exciting new Northern Territory solar project, solar plant and um, undersea cable. David, um, we're running out of time, so can we get on to who you're partnering with? You're partnering with 5B using Maverick units that are prefabricated solar arrays, and that's for that 15,000 hectare solar farm that you're building out of Tennant Creek. Can you tell us a little bit more about these arrays? Sure. So the um, 5B has taken a completely new approach to uh, development of the construction of the solar farm. 
a conventional approach for solar is basically, is, is basically assembling a, a Meccano set out in the middle of a paddock, and it's complicated. And there's lots of lots of little parts, and it's logistically difficult, and there's a lot of geotechnical risks because you have to penetrate uh, the ground on um, ten, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of locations. And if you hit rock, then you've got problems. The um, the five B's Maverick uh, design approach is to prefabricate the solar farm in a controlled environment in a factory, and then ship the Maverick, what they call the Maverick units, uh, out to the out to the solar farm site. Um, now they leave a factory. Um, I can refer your listeners to the five B dot com dot au website. There's a good video there because it tells a thousand words, but basically. The Maverick is a concertinaed up uh, solar farm, and um, when it gets to site, a telehandler or forklift simply drives backwards and unfolds the Maverick on the ground, and it's done. And so, what would take um, week, you know, a week can be done in the field in a matter of uh, ten, thirty minutes or so. So, from a um, uh, a construction perspective, it's vastly more efficient. But um, you've still got the risk of typhoons and stuff, so you've still got to anchor those and you've still got to address the tilt, the orientation of the panels, don't you? Yeah. So, in fact, uh, 5B Maverick systems are deployed at Boorooloola as long, uh, along with a number of other northern northern towns. Um, the Boorooloola was hit by a uh, record uh, cyclone earlier in this year and... Um, that uh, Maverick system went straight through yeah, and, and sailed through the, uh, the cyclone um, with zero damage. I hope not literally. <laughs> yeah, sorry, that's probably a poor Not term. with those concrete uh, weights on it. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it went, uh, survived that process with zero damage to it and it was operating continuously. So the um, it's a proven technology in terms of that. Obviously, the cyclone, cyclone risk in Tennant Creek is um, vastly... Lower uh, than um, than uh, at Boorooloola. The um, we do have to uh, anchor them, and uh, so it does primarily rely on um, gravity. Uh, but uh, it does get anchored with small pegs. Um, they're pretty shallow penetration, and so ground risk is is pretty nominal. The um, the other thing which uh, you you mentioned before is we're looking at fifteen thousand hectare. Uh, solar farm site. That's actually not quite right. Um, one of the other characteristics of the of the Maverick system is that it's uh, probably more than twice the energy density of conventional solar. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, once we've deployed the solar farm, the other infrastructure we need is operations, maintenance buildings, voltage source converters, um, battery storage, etc. Um, but all of that combined will actually be considerably less than 15,000 hectares. Now, that figure splashed everywhere, and, and if I'm right, that's On your website, I think, 15, I know. <laughs> yes, it's our fault. <laughs> Am I correct in thinking that's 15 square kilometres, if, if it was 15,000 hectares? Um, no. 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 Um, uh, so hectares, 100, well, someone might... Oh, we won't take up that. Hectares, hectares time, 100 by 100 metres. Yeah. Um, so... Uh, ten hectares is uh, is a hundred by thousand meters. So I think we're just we're just running a little short on time. So I did just want to ask um, about the time frame for the project because this all sounds very exciting, and I'm sure. Um, I mean, I know that I'm hoping that you know this project will be 
completed sooner rather than later. So do you guys have any estimates about when you might go live? Yeah, uh, we are targeting uh, financial close and uh, notice to see on construction in 2023 and commissioning commercial operations date in 2027. Wow, that's pretty good. That's a long time. That's not actually very long. Well, the the submarine cable is the long lead item Mm -hmm. in that whole construction process Um, and uh, we are looking at ways to improve that, but that's that's, a realistic. Uh, time frame. David, Australia's not generally good at, at long uh, long lead time projects and, and um, long payback periods. Uh, how come you're able to do it? Is this the Singapore link? or? Um, well, I guess uh, we've got uh, the right uh, our, our investors have the right frame of mind um, in terms of the time frames required. The, um, the commercial returns of the operating uh, project are like uh, you know, are, are on a par with any other uh, infrastructure, and and certainly uh, there is a deep pool of capital interested in investing in very long term operating infrastructure. So that's a, um, that's obviously for the the construction and operational phase. Uh, but we are fortunate that we've got uh, investors with the right frame of mind in terms of uh, the the development timeline and wanting to make a uh, significant impact. And David, just quickly, where will the jobs be? During construction, uh, because we're utilising the Maverick technology on the solar t- side, most of the jobs will be located in Adelaide and Darwin uh, with the Mavericks assembled there and then shipped to site. Uh, there will be, and so that's around about a thousand jobs in both cities and construction on site um, the job numbers or the jobs will primarily be focused on construction of the high voltage uh, electrical equipment, the voltage source converters, um, uh, plus a lot of civil works and uh, inverters and storage in- installation, and that will be in the hundreds of uh, construction jobs. Fantastic. So, and then operationally, it'll be a couple of hundred jobs. Great. Well, David, thank you. It's been an incredibly exciting project, and I hope it all goes well. And our listeners, I'm sure, can Google um, Sun Cable and find out more, or they can go to the Northern Territory News and I'm, find it splashed. I'm across. holding a copy of the Northern Territory Times from the 22nd, 20 billion solar plan, and you've even pushed crocodiles off the front page of a Murdoch yeah. rag. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thanks again for your time today, David. Right. Pleasure. All right. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks. We've been speaking to David Griffin, MD at Sun Cable. The Beyond Zero show is brought to you by the climate change solutions think tank Beyond Zero Emissions and is recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne and syndicated around Australia on the community radio network. Previous episodes of the show are available on iTunes and Stitcher, so please subscribe to help others find the show. If you enjoy the program and can donate to help cover airtime costs, please go to the BZE website and click on the Donate button. Thanks for listening and we look forward to you joining us again next week. It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Pantidra. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational solar window in a can. Beyond Zero, global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level.